Right, as I noted, we, we read through the whole chapter of Daniel 2 for our Old Testament reading, so I won't read it again prior to the sermon, but I do want to go back and read a couple selected parts of the chapter. First, verses 20 to 23, and then I'll skip over and read at the end, um, verses 46 and 47. So Daniel 2, 20 to 23, then 46 and 47, as always, the very word of the living God. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And then over in verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word as we come before it. May he write it upon our hearts, plant it deep within us, so that it might grow and bear fruit in our lives. As we come before the word, let's once again briefly turn to the Lord our God in prayer. Our Father and our God, we once again ask your blessing. Now as we come before your word, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us as you have promised to do. That you would also fulfill the promise that you have made, that your word goes out and does not return to you void, but instead accomplishes everything that you purpose for it and is successful in the very things for which you send it. For us, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that our eyes would be open and our ears would be open to see and hear what you have for us this morning. So making your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what you teach us in that word. Father, all of this we ask in the precious name of Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Dreams are weird. In fact, I almost titled this sermon, Dreams are Weird. Because dreams are weird. Man, I had a weird dream last night. To which my reaction is, of course you did. All dreams are weird. They don't make sense, even if you can remember what it was. I I had one earlier this week. This, This just shows you how weird dreams can be. This is one I remember. I'm at work, I'm going for a walk, I think I'm walking to go have lunch. And there's an open field, a huge open field, and there's buffalo in it. And they're amazing. Big, huge buffalo running around, and I'm watching them thinking, that is one of the coolest things I have ever seen. And then off in the distance, there's two teams playing a sport that's kind of like rugby or football or something. And I'm thinking, wow, these guys are talented because... They make a ramp. They, they, they stack themselves upon each other and make a ramp. And one guy runs up the ramp and catches the ball so it doesn't go out of bounds. And I'm thinking, golly, that's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. 
And what are they going to do? What are they going to do if they have to line up against each other? Do the buffalo take part in that? What do they do if there's a scrum or a scrimmage? <laughs> and I woke up. And I thought, that was a weird dream. And then I had to tell myself, dreams are weird. That's what they are. And we, we have these dreams, and, and so often we want to ask, what does it mean? What does it mean? What's the meaning of the dream? A big question, and there are charlatans out there who will take your money to tell you what they think your dream means. But dreams that actually have meaning are few and far between, even in Scripture. In fact, if you really want to know what God is is saying to you, the, the simplest and easiest thing is to pick up this and read it. God's going to speak to you very clearly in this book, uh, much more clearly than in, in any dream. But here in Daniel 2, we do have an example of a dream given by God and given for a purpose, a dream with meaning, and a, a dream that troubles Nebuchadnezzar deeply. It should remind us of the story of Joseph and Pharaoh when Joseph was a prisoner very similar stories. Two kings, two kings with dreams, two Jewish captives, Joseph and Daniel, two official messengers from the king to the, uh, the prisoner. In both cases, God-given interpretations of the dream. In both cases, the captive raised, raised up to a position of, of power and high influence in the whole kingdom, the highest office. But there are differences, too. Nebuchadnezzar refuses to tell what his dream is. And, in fact, threatens to kill the wise men if they don't tell him what the dream is and its interpretation. The story that we're going to examine a little more closely here this morning has, I think, just two primary lessons. The first... And you hear it in Daniel's prayer, and you hear it in what Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges at the end. The first lesson is that God is the source of all wisdom. And the second, not unlike what we've seen already in Daniel, God is the one with true power. God is the God of wisdom. God is the God of power. It's tempting to break this long chapter into two sections. Many of the commentaries and, and sermon series do this, but I think it's meant to be taken together, and so we're going we're gonna to just forge ahead and plow through all 49 verses this morning. And I just want to go through the story. Just go through it and look at the lessons that we see, the insights along the way. So let's dive right in. Chapter 2, verse 1 the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Right here we have a question that the scholars love to debate. Daniel's taken captive, his three friends taken captive in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Is this uh, dream, does this dream take place while Daniel is still in training, or does it take place after the events at the end of chapter 1, where he comes before the king and is recognized as ten times uh, smarter better than anybody else in the kingdom. The scholars go either way. I prefer the simplest interpretation, which is that Daniel is still in training at this point. Um, I think that's true in part. 
because Daniel doesn't know about what's going on. He's not part of the group that tells Nebuchadnezzar they can't interpret the dream and they have to go find him and his companions. And Daniel has asked the question, what's going on? Why is this happening? So I think he's kind of off, still in training while this is happening. It makes sense that this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, so we'll just take it uh, that way. But what it says is that Nebuchadnezzar's spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. He couldn't sleep. A dream so frustrating, so troubling, so itching in his mind that he, he laid there thinking about it. What does this mean? What's going on? And so we read that he summoned his wise men, his magicians, his enchanters, his sorcerers, his Chaldeans. Here the word is not a national or ethnic one. It's, it's a title for a, a wise man, if you will. All trained. Same training that Daniel and his friends are getting for three years. They're trained to read the stars, to understand signs and omens, to look at the entrails of animals and the way sticks and bones fall and the patterns they make. These are the kinds of people that if they're told a dream, they go and consult their books and their scrolls and their collection of of wisdom and try to interpret what it means. In other words, and this is an important little insight into this uh, situation that's going on, they're not prophets. They don't hear from God and speak on God's behalf. They're gods in this culture. They're gods speak, but they speak not directly. They speak indirectly through dreams and through entrails of animals and goofy things like that. And so they're more diviners or wise men of a general sort. They're good at interpreting things and they've got books and scrolls and verbal wisdom passed down from generation to generation that they consult. And so when we get to verse 4, what they, what they say is, is very reasonable. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. That's standard procedure. Tell us what you dreamt. We'll tell you what it means. But Nebuchadnezzar turns the tables, does something unexpected. He won't tell them the dream. And he says in verse 5, the word for me is firm. I've made up my mind. Um, There's some older traditions, some older interpretations that think Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream. And that's why he wanted them to tell him the dream. That's based on, a, quite frankly, a bad uh, translation from the Hebrew. Uh, probably through the Vulgate, through the King James. Um, the, the straight, simple translation is, the, my, my word is firm. I've made up my mind. I'm not going to tell you the dream. You need to tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Again, the wise men protest. Well, look, if you tell us the dream, we can interpret. We can do this. But Nebuchadnezzar responds, look, you're just, you're just trying to buy time. You're just trying to buy time. If you can't do this, there's only one thing that's going to happen. Only one sentence. You all have agreed amongst yourselves to speak lying and corrupt words to me until times change. In other words, until some other king comes along. Let's just string this guy along until he's gone. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I know that maybe they are thinking that, maybe they're not, maybe he's just paranoid, but that's what he tells them. 
Tell me the dream and I will know that you can tell me its interpretation. Now, why, why does Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar do this? Again, I, we don't know for sure. God's word doesn't tell us explicitly. Maybe it's just an, an early example of his <laughs> mental instability that we're going to see in succeeding chapters. His unpredictable nature. But at the very least, if you look at verse 9, it seems that he just doesn't trust his wise man. This is how things are done. The, 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 the wise men repeated again in verse 10 and following. There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. No great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is with flesh. And remember, their belief system is such that the gods don't speak directly to men, to mankind. They only speak indirectly. But we know, the readers of the story know, there is a true God, and he does speak. And the story is going to go on to confirm this quite powerfully. Well, in verses 12 to 16, Nebuchadnezzar is angry. He's ticked off. Three times he's been rebuffed by the wise men. And now he commands their death. Daniel does not know of the decree. He has to be told by this, uh, this man, Arioch, the captain of the, the king's guard. And the, the Bible says Daniel's actions were prudent and discreet. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. So already he's displaying some of that God-given wisdom that we're told about in verse 17 of chapter 1. Daniel is already a, a young man full of wisdom. And so he goes to the king and gains time. Just set a date... And I'll tell you the interpretation of the dream. Then we get to verses 17 to 23, which is the first half of the story, the cliffhanger, if you will. Daniel goes to his house, tells Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his friends, the situation, and tells them to seek mercy, seek the mercy from God concerning this mystery, this thing hidden, that he will reveal it to them. Now think about this for a minute. What's the first thing that Daniel and his friends do? They pray. What's the first thing you or I would do? I gotta go talk to this guy, I gotta go do this, I gotta make these arrangements, I gotta, uh, that guy's in good with the king, maybe he can change his mind. Ooh, maybe if I save up some money and buy off that dude, maybe I should just get while the getting's good. There's the back door. If I go through there, by uh, yeah, I think I can make it across the river and get out of town. Our first reaction is something else, normally. Daniel is wise, though. <laughs> so Daniel and his friends pray. They don't plot. They don't run away. They don't rely on a network of powerful allies or political manipulation. They just simply pray. How very biblical is that? Does anyone have a need? Is anyone sick? Let him pray. Let him go to the elders and pray, says James in chapter 5. So they prayed. They sought God's mercy in this matter, and God answered. And he gave a vision to Daniel that revealed the mystery. We're not told what the revelation is yet, but Daniel and his friends know. Again, what's their response? Run to the king? 
I got it, I got it, I got it. Stop the, stop the presses, stop the execution. Celebrate, throw a party? No. It's the same response. Prayer. Got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God for revealing the mystery to him. Again, is that our first response? Prayer? We usually want to celebrate and party. But here we have this powerful and wonderful prayer where the theme of God's wisdom and might runs throughout the whole thing. Blessed be the, God, the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. This is the God who changes times and seasons and removes kings and sets up kings. This is the God who, who owns wisdom and who owns might, who can change seasons and who can raise up and bring down kings. Continuing on, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. This is God who gives power and wisdom. He sets up kings. He gives them power. He gives wisdom and knowledge to those who are wise and understanding, revealing deep and hidden things. So God doesn't keep it all to himself. He shares it with others. Daniel continues very specifically, To you, O God and my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you. You have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel sees himself as a recipient of God's mercy and grace. The God of wisdom and might has had mercy on Daniel and shared some of that wisdom and might with him. This to me is the heart of this chapter. This is what this chapter is all about. Who has wisdom? God has wisdom. Not the wise men, not the enchanters and sorcerers and Chaldeans, not Nebuchadnezzar troubled in losing his sleep because of a dream. That's not wisdom. It's a pretty weak king. Who has power? God. Not Nebuchadnezzar. He can threaten. He can even kill the wise men, which is a very stupid thing to do because if he kills them, there's no chance of having his dream interpreted. Pretty pointless use of power. God has wisdom. God has power. And where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. And where does power come from? It comes from God. To whom does God give wisdom and power? To whomever he chooses. In this case, certainly not Nebuchadnezzar, and certainly not his wise men, but to this young man, Daniel, still in training, only young whippersnapper. And through this young Daniel, God makes clear to Nebuchadnezzar where wisdom and power are found. We read from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, Paul writing, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the great debater of this age? Where is wisdom ultimately found according to Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1? Where is power ultimately found according to Paul? In Christ. He calls him the power and the wisdom of God. 
What is the message of wisdom and power? Paul tells us, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Greeks. What do the Jews seek? They seek signs. What are signs a demonstration of? Power. What do the Greeks seek? Wisdom. Where do they find it? In Christ. And in Christ alone. This is the heart of this chapter. True wisdom, true power, are in the one who came and lived obediently, died a cursed death and rose again to save all of his people. From our very first parents in the garden to the last soul who repents and believes in Christ. We tend to think wisdom is, is knowing things, having an answer for every question, being able to win a debate or a discussion. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is Christ. Wisdom is the message of the gospel. We think power is the ability to influence others, to be influential in the community, to sway people's opinions, to get them to do what we want, to live how we think they should live. That's not power. Power is Christ. You want power? How about someone who raised himself from the dead? How about someone who raises dead souls from their death and transgression and sin? And who will raise their bodies from death to eternal life? That's power. That's power. Heart and soul of Daniel 2 is the same as what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians. Wisdom and power reside with and are given by God and find their highest manifestation in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, given for our salvation. Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel don't get to see Christ, but they do get to see the power and wisdom of God. And we see this as Daniel goes before the king to interpret his dream. So, verses 24 to 30, Daniel returns to Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, prevents the destruction of the wise men, and is ushered into the presence of the king. I, I love what Arioch does here. He says um, in verse 25, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known the king uh, the interpretation. Look what I did. I stuck in my thumb and pulled out a plum. What a good boy am I. Everybody wants to take credit before the king. <laughs> and Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel quite plainly, Are you able to make known to me the dream? The dream that I've seen and its interpretation. And Daniel says very clearly, nobody can. No wise men Enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. No one can do this. But, he says in verse 28, 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed. There is a God in heaven who can do this. Daniel's focus is on God, where it ought to be. But what I like about Daniel as well is here's an example of humility. Arioch didn't find this. I didn't find it. God gave it. 
He did it through me. But there's a humble servant's attitude about Daniel that reminds me so much of what we just recently went through in the, the letter to the Philippians. Humble service. So verses 31 to 35, he tells the king the dream. There's a statue, an image, mighty, exceeding brightness, standing before the king. Its appearance is frightening. A head of gold, chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, with feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now we know from some archaeological sources, extra biblical sources, that this kind of vision or image with different kinds of metals, especially regressing or or diminishing from gold to silver and other lesser metals, was very common and very much interpreted as a a way of saying our time is great, but what's coming after us is lousy. So just the statue itself probably would have been somewhat familiar to Nebuchadnezzar. The interesting part of his dream is the part that would not have been familiar to him at all. Because Daniel goes on, As you looked... A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff, the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This, I think, is what troubles Nebuchadnezzar. He's got enough cultural background to understand that maybe this statue is about me and the kings who come later, and that's great because I'm the head of gold and yada yada. The thing that bugs him, (laughs) this weird stone that appears, that crushes everything, so that it becomes like powder. Metal has to become powder to be blown away by the wind. It's nothing. Now, if you're a king with ambition, and Nebuchadnezzar was a king with ambition, that's troubling. That's incredibly troubling. The rock, a lousy rock, destroys the statue. So Daniel proceeds in verses 36 to 45 to explain the meaning of the dream. Indeed, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Other lesser kingdoms will come after, silver, bronze, iron, each ruling over all the earth. The fourth is strong, strong as iron. One thing to note is that while the value of the metals diminishes, the strength of the metals increases. Iron is able to crush everything around it. The metals become stronger. And yet that last kingdom also has feet of iron mixed with clay. That indicates that this is a divided kingdom, partly strong and partly brittle. Metaphor is used of a mixed marriage. Probably ethnic or some sort of national mixing or something like that. We don't know for sure. But the important thing is that in the days of that last fourth kingdom, the God of heaven term Daniel has already used 
It's the God of heaven who's revealed these things about your dream. There is a God in heaven. This God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that breaks into pieces all of the prior kingdoms, a kingdom that stands forever. This is what is going to happen. And Daniel concludes it with some very simple but convincing words. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. There is no doubt whatsoever that this is going to happen. Now, I'll talk about those kingdoms in a minute because I know that's what everybody wants to know. What are the kingdoms? But it's one of the least important things in this whole chapter, to be quite honest. What strikes me is Nebuchadnezzar's reaction in verses 46 to 49. Daniel gives praise in verses 20 to 23 after God reveals to him the dream. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? He also gives praise. Nebuchadnezzar gives praise to God and acknowledges him as the God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, falls on his face before Daniel. Now, he's probably not worshiping Daniel. We know from other sources, again, that this is often a way to acknowledge Daniel's God. So he falls on his face before Daniel, really before Daniel's God. Acknowledges the God of gods and the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. And then gives Daniel high honors, great gifts. Made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief prefect over all the wise men. And upon Daniel's request makes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego high officials over the affairs of the province of Babylon. The God of wisdom and power has indeed given Daniel both wisdom and power, and to his friends as well. God uses Nebuchadnezzar to do this, teaching Nebuchadnezzar a lesson along the way. And Nebuchadnezzar's response is, is so appropriate. All he can do is fall on his face and praise God. That's the right response. It's always the right response. Response, a question we should ask ourselves. Do we see God's wisdom and power? Do we acknowledge it? And do we respond appropriately? Giving him the praise. That's the real point of this chapter. The God of wisdom, the God of power, seeing him for all of his wisdom and power, and falling down and giving him praise. Well, what about the nations to come? I'm going to keep it real simple. Too many try to make too much of this succession of nations and interpretation of mountains and rocks and things. It's really quite simple, I think. The gold clearly is Babylon. The silver is the Medes and the Persians that come after. We'll see that later in Daniel. The bronze part of the statue is the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and the iron, including the iron mixed with clay, is the Roman Empire. And we know, don't we, (laughs) during the time of the Romans, God established a new kingdom. He set up his rock. The rock is Christ, 
The growth of the rock is the growth of Christ's body, the church. It's real simple. That's really all that's going on here. Confirmation of this, Jesus in Luke 20. He tells the the story, the parable of the the owner of the, the vineyard who sends his servants to look after what's going on. Servant after servant gets killed. And finally he sends his own son who in turn is killed. And uh, Jesus says, what will the owner do? Well, he's going to come himself and take that vineyard away from the lousy servants and give it to others. And the the response from the, the Jewish leaders is typical. No, 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 how could that ever happen? And Jesus says, look, this is confirmation of the Old Testament. He refers to Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then he refers to Daniel, chapter 2. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And if it falls on anyone, they're crushed. Jesus is saying that vision in Daniel, that stone, that's me. That's me and my people. Consistent with other images we have in Scripture. Christ is the rock that led Israel through the wilderness. Christ is the rock upon which we are to build a stable house that can stand to the rising wind and waves of the storm. Our confession of Christ is a rock of faith. The same as Peter's upon which Jesus said he would build his church. The kingdoms and the rock, here's the deal. The kingdoms of this world always decline in glory, even as they grow in power. Have you ever seen any kingdom in all the history of the world that does not decline in worth as it grows in power, become more decadent, more evil, more wicked as it grows in power? Any, has any kingdom not escaped that fate? I can't think of one including our country and our time. And have we seen any power? Have we seen any might or wisdom like the modern world? Not just weapons of destruction, but the incredible advances in technology. What, what you and I hold in our hands when we pick up our phones. Yet that power is based on feet of clay because it ignores or rejects the God of power and wisdom. So the message of the vision is clear. The kingdoms of this world are brought low over and over and over again. As the gospel goes forth and the witness of Christ and the power of God and the wisdom of God is revealed and men and women and children confess their sins and turn to faith in Christ. That's destroying kingdoms. The simple witness of the gospel And we know a day is coming when those kingdoms will be crushed to powder and blown away completely. How did Daniel respond to that truth again? With praise. Praise be the God of power and might. Even Nebuchadnezzar, a lousy pagan king, got down on his face and praised the God of power and might. How do we respond to this chapter? You want to obsess about 
kingdoms and rocks and stones and precious metals and what they mean? You're missing the point. This is about the God of power and wisdom, giving him the praise and honor and glory that he deserves. Recognizing that Christ is the manifestation of the wisdom and power of God and recognizing the reality of our own sin and coming to Christ in repentance and faith. We must agree with Paul. We preach Christ and Him crucified. So the call goes out. Here and around the world, repent, believe, give praise to God in Christ who is the power and the wisdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. God of power and might, we do acknowledge that this morning and give you praise and honor and glory. That you give wisdom to your children. And indeed you give us power as well. The powerful words of truth in the word You indwell us with the spirit of power. You grant us gifts where we can draw upon that power and use them for your glory and for your honor. Father, we pray again that you would enlighten us, equip us, empower us, give us wisdom that we might glorify and honor you in all that we do. Keep us humble, like Daniel recognizing that any good gift, anything worthwhile, anything that means anything to us is a gift from your gracious hand that you have had mercy upon us and have loved us with a great love. Again, keep us always ready, always eager to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And through the simple sharing of the good news and seeing men and women and children brought for repentance and faith, may we see kingdoms crumble, and may we see Christ in all of his glory. And Father, may that happen soon. We ask it all in his precious name. Amen.